Every team, every topic, everywhere, this is Believe. All right, everybody, welcome to episode 13 of the Film Detectives podcast. And I think it's very fitting that episode 13, we have some horror introduced to the show, not just horror, a slasher, yes. a very new slasher film, actually, uh, from writer-director Jacob Johnson, a dream catcher. It's his first feature film directorial debut, and it's out now. You can see it, honestly, right now. If you want to listen, watch it while you're watching the podcast and listening to the podcast, you can do that. But it is out now on Amazon Prime. Go check it out. Jacob Johnson, welcome to the show. Welcome, hey, man. So good to be here, guys. Yes, likewise. Good to have you on the show. Yeah. So first off, Jacob, how did you get your start in writing and directing? I've always kind of loved um, storytelling, and it's probably a really cliche thing to say, but <clears throat> I guess uh, since I was a kid, um, a good example, when like in second grade, uh, like recess, instead of like playing games or like whatever, I would try to like orchestrate scenes and they were specific for movies that had come out. Mm -hmm. And I would just be trying to like spin off a sequel that I would make up with no real plot. Yep. But <clears throat> I do remember distinctly uh, Titanic. Um, I was going to make Titanic two <laughs> and it was going to be about the sister ship, which was actually a real thing. Yeah. 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 Also sank. And uh, so, you know, some of my classmates and I would be like hanging off the slide, like we'd be hanging off the boat and it would just be kind of the same scenes over and over and over again. Excellent. We'd be like, okay, I'm the boat's sinking. So everybody hold on for dear life. Um, <laughs> and then, <clears throat> then there was like when video games kind of came into the zeitgeist, uh, I remember there was one called Time Commando that was like this horrible polygonal 3D game <laughs> where like the guy had no fingers. Yep. Um, that was going to be a movie. My third grade self thought I could make a time travel film. Of course. I had no camera. I had no nothing. But there was just like this rallying cry of like, hey, let's go rehearse. Um, yeah. But yeah, so, so it, was, it was kind of that. And then as I got older, it was like the ability to be able to write short stories and uh, short form content and kind of understanding more about what film and TV and writing in general is. Um, but, you know, I think that love for creating worlds was kind of baked into me as a child um mm -hmm. and just something i really wanted to pursue since i was a wee little lad a wee, a lad. wee, lad. <laughs> a wee so, lad so was was horror and thriller was that something you thought you would gravitate towards was that ever on your radar at the time or absolutely not i was terrified of horror movies like <laughs> terrified i i remember in the fourth grade i saw the shining uh, which <clears throat> honestly Classic. I didn't understand anyway because I'm a fourth grader and I don't know what the complex, you know, emotional relevance of that movie is. But I was like half watching it because my parents were watching it with my brother in like the living room and I was kind of like in the kitchen, but also watching the movie and sneaking that, like a look type of thing. Yeah, it was a like little peek, the little peek. I yeah. did that with Terminator. So because my folks were like, you're not watching any PG 13 movies until you're 13. <laughs> basically yeah, so. yeah, same <laughs> it's, it's uh it's probably for good reason i was yeah. I, it, it was yeah i didn't understand but i was terrified and i just like that uh i had no real interest in it until i got to like high school mm -hmm. and i don't really know what the term was but i i started to find that horror movies were just a real great place for escapism mm -hmm. um mm -hmm. and also a good place for social messaging and so like really bold themes like you could really bake some classic 
themes into mm-hmm. these stories without being preachy. Right. Um, we're like in a, a great staunch character drama, like Mildred Pierce. We're getting all of this great thematic messaging, but it's like, well, you know what you're getting into when you're watching Mildred Pierce. Right. You know, when you sit down to watch something where, you know, it's a commentary on socialism, but it's about a mass killer. You're mm-hmm. like, oh, wow, this is a, you know, there, there's a really cool way to tell a story that maybe is a little different. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, to sort of gravitate toward that a little bit. Yeah, using mm-hmm. subtlety to really portray the narrative and carry it forward and such. Instead of, yeah, as you said, hitting the audience over the head with <laughs> the <Yeah>. message <laughs> and such. Yeah, this is the... Sometimes you have to. Yeah, sometimes. Um, but yeah, I mean, like uh, those subtle moments, though, really set a film apart for that. As far as uh, horror films and um, The Shining, you mentioned. Um, also, like, what were some other movie influences that you had growing up? Well, the big, the big one for me was Jurassic Park, I and mean, it's why I have a uh, dinosaur tattoo on my arm. But um, it, it was the movie I saw as a kid, which also I probably shouldn't have seen when I was five. But I just remember <laughs> this like experience, and and I, I I still can't even explain what it was, but it was very transformative. Mm-hmm. And uh, I left being like, I want to do that for other people. Like I right. want to be able to, to give people whatever this feeling is like, mm-hmm. I guess it's escapism. I guess it's maybe creating your own narrative. I don't know, but, but I was so fascinated and inspired and um, that kind of set, set into motion my playground film creations. Um, mm-hmm. But yeah, that was the one that really drove me. I, when I got into, you know, I don't want to name all the terrible movies that I like because people will be like, you can't like that. We, 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 uh, hey, we watch a lot of, we watch everything, man. So it's, it's, uh, you know, any, anything goes. <laughs> so, um, yeah, I mean, like I definitely see the influence of, yeah, bringing the audience along for the ride, you know, especially yeah. with Jurassic Park, you know, at the time they had tried so many, uh, new things with digital technology uh the graphics were amazing visually i see also why that would also influence you too because a lot of your you know yeah and and you know visually you're you seem to be a very visual guy just from watching Dreamcatcher and also uh cadence um you know like visual the visual adventure play the storytelling and the storytelling aspect comes into play really Absolutely. I think that the, um, you know, part of the beauty of film is it's obviously a visual medium. And Mm -hmm. um, that means a bajillion different things. And and for me, it's, you know, fascinating to try to bake in style, but also use style for the sake of storytelling and not just be like, I'm gonna make a stylized movie because style's cool, you know, that gets tired. Um, But, you know, we get these great filmmakers and, and, we talk about it later, but specifically Dreamcatcher, it's like these giallo Italian films of the 70s, 60s, and 70s. Mm-hmm. That color was part mm-hmm. of the film, like Suspiria, yeah. Um, and I always thought that was really fascinating. And, and jumping ahead, my, my emphasis in film school was actually production design. Okay, um, I decided to go because I went to Chapman in Orange County. Oh, but, cool. Uh, my my well, folks uh, live right by there, actually. Oh, so. yeah. Yeah, it's a it's a great. It was a, it was. I really had a uh, pleasant time. Um, uh-huh. But when you get to like this level in the film school, it's like you have to pick an emphasis, and you can either pick directing, editing, cinematography, production design, or sound design. And mm-hmm. uh, you know, I, I wanted to to direct, but when I got to that period, there were sixty other 
people that were like, well, I'm going to choose directing. Mm-hmm. And it was like, really? You know, in the, you know, you always have to make a thesis film. That's kind of like the right. thing. Yeah. But there were only four production designers. And uh, I, had, I had loved the production design classes that I had. And, and my mentor there was Larry Paul, who Blade Runner, Back to the Future, mm-hmm. Romancing Ooh. the Stone. I mean, this guy was a, a legend in the industry. And uh, I was like, you know what? I think you look at the trajectory of filmmakers that had gone from production design to directing, Catherine Hardwick, Joe Johnston, Robert Eggers. Like, it's, it's really outside of maybe cinematography, the most translatable kind of field mm-hmm. um so that was my, my choice and i i don't regret it at all because i do believe understanding how costume art mm-hmm. you know that the mise-en-scene of it all if you want to be technical like yeah you, you do have to understand that as a filmmaker if you want to try to create something that doesn't feel um surface or or just you know saccharine for the sake of sweet right yeah and i think you bring up an interesting point there you know going that route uh, I always think, you know, with, with actors or directors, anything in this industry, especially today, you have to wear multiple hats. Mm-hmm. You can't be one thing. So having that under your belt on top of, you know, directing and writing, that's that's huge because you're seeing uh, the world from a different lens when you step onto that set yeah, already. And, and very detail oriented. Kind of fascinating with, with some of the directors uh, that I worked with where I would you know be production design on their piece or something. The amount of people like, well, I don't speak production design. Just like I need it to look this, or I need to. And it's yeah. like, well, you think you're going to go to a studio and be like, all right, guys, so I don't speak production design, but like I want it to feel like, you know, Looney Tunes. Um, if you if you don't learn that skill to communicate with your crew, mm-hmm. no one's going to take you seriously as a filmmaker. You know? Right. Yeah. You want to speak the have- same language, you know, the film language, you know, especially. Yeah. And you don't have to be a master at it. So I was wondering also, what kind of got you on to coming, you know, like when, when you were focusing on production design, what got you into kind of the Marvel scene and how did you, how'd you get that gig as yeah. a visual, <laughs> uh, visual development producer? And what is a visual development <laughs> That's producer? That's the question do? everyone yeah. Asking. yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, here, okay. So my, I actually finished college in two years, kind of sped through. Mm-hmm. Um, I was taking like doubling my course load. And I just felt like when I moved to LA from Kentucky, I was in the dugout and, and Hollywood was the baseball diamond. And I was like, while I was in film school, I was not playing the game, mm-hmm. you know, but I was so close to it. So I, I really tried to incentivize myself to finish so I could hopefully, you know, jump into the fray of unemployment. But to me, it wasn't going to be unemployment. <laughs> I'm going to get a job. Yeah. yeah. Uh, that's the hope. Um, but, but during my last semester, I got an internship uh, at Marvel in animation. Um, okay. And I had, I had tried to get one in research and development and live action. Um, and back then the studio, so this was 2009, mm-hmm. uh, 2010, top t- 2000, 2009. Yeah. So there, there was Iron Man and Iron Man 2 was in post. So it was like, <laughs> right. it was not the studio we know it as. Right. Uh, but <clears throat> through the animation side, um, it was still, it's still, it's still, it's a very small company uh, in terms of, of the creatives. And I just tried to learn as much as I could and uh, talk to as many people as I could. And my internship supervisor on, on our last day where you kind of have these, I don't know if you guys did internships, but you get kind of these exit interviews. Yeah, yeah. 
yep. like how and, you uh, did and like, th- okay, this is what you could work on and yeah, that type of thing. Yeah. Well, yeah. What's your dream, kid? And what's your dream? Uh, <laughs> what do you want to be? be? An actor. Yeah. 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 Sound <laughs> guy. Uh, yeah, go on. Um, <laughs> and uh, she, my, my internship supervisor graciously sat me down with Jeremy Latcham, who at the time, um, he had been Kevin Feige's assistant for a while when he was doing the movies with Laura Schuler Donner, like the X-Men films and stuff. Right. But when he became the president of Marvel, he promoted Jeremy to SVP of, of production. Um, he was, I think he was only 29 at the time when we wow. first met him. Oh my goodness. So he was still young and, and really yeah. just the grind. That was a guy, he still is such a, you know, inspirational guy. Um, we talked about it. And at the time I was like, I want to be a production designer, you know, mm-hmm. like, and he's like, that's so refreshing. He's like, cause I can actually tell you there is a direct path to do that. He's mm-hmm. like so many people that have talked to me are like, I want to be a producer or I want to be a director or I want to be a, you know, an actor. And he's like, there is actually no clear path to doing any of those things. Um, he's like, but with production design there is. And I was like, yeah, great. And then part of me was also afraid of then saying like, well, I also want to write or direct because then, you know, I felt like I might jeopardize my chance and be like, oh, so right. this kid's <laughs> just trying to weasel his way in. Yeah. Um, but uh, yeah, so he called me a couple of days later and he's like, well, we're going to start a new department and oh, I'd like cool. you to meet a few of the other um, executives here and uh, a couple of the other guys who are going to be running the department. I think we might have a position that would fit. And so the next like couple of weeks, and this was like my still my last two weeks of college, like leading up to graduation. Mm-hmm. Um, but wow. I was I was interviewing and uh, I met with Ryan Minerding and Charlie Wynn, who were going to be the kind of heads of visual development. And what mm-hmm. it was was going to be an in-house team that would be designing. This was what it was when it first started. All of the key characters, all of the key monsters, kind of mm-hmm. anything fan service. Yeah. All of the hero designing. costumes. Uh, oh wow hero props and and also orchestrating the action sequences like helping to figure out what those keyframe like you know uh thor hitting captain america with the the shield like those mm-hmm. kinds of things like kind of similar to previs like previsual visualization in a way kind of like what it, they did on lord of the rings in a way it, i would say it was more to inspire mm-hmm. and also to incentivize the writer and filmmaker like if in the writing process the writer's like man i'd really love to see just one frame right a really beautifully rendered frame of, oh, of okay. this and then use that to inspire. Um, and then what it became is actually more of a continuity kingdom where it was like our department was really in charge of creating the continuity of the visual continuity of all of the films in the universe, uh, mm-hmm. the Marvel Cinematic Universe. Um, they were still designing all of the key characters and key monsters and uh, you know, figuring out what magic is, figuring out how the Iron Man suits work. Right. figuring out how, you know, Hawkeye's arrows would function and all the different functions of them. Um, it was it was kind of fascinating and seeing how the movies, because I got to be a part of them from development all the way through post. So it was a great film. It was like better than film school in the sense of like, yeah. you know, seeing how these movies come together. Um, and yeah. are built from the ground up. On a grand scale, yeah. Yeah. And I mean, how many people are actually involved in making, you know, all these things happen. And when I got yeah. into the producing side, it was more about being in, in these development meetings, being a part of all the key department meetings and just like helping to achieve deadlines, you know, mm-hmm. costume fittings and uh, visual effects assets. And just like, 
it was a lot of different weird things that I don't know if any other studio have because yeah. know, Marvel's so unique with how all of their movies have to coincide, you know, coalesce. Yeah, right. They coincide with the universe and yeah, how all the characters are like laid out throughout the whole timeline, the MCU timeline. Absolutely. And, such, and yeah. then how those things evolve. Like yeah. Captain America can't use the same techniques that he did in the first film and this right. film. And like, mm-hmm. how are we going to, you know, evolve uh, and the Doctor outfits change, and the outfits change. You know, especially with Iron Man's suit, the evolution of the suit is like from Iron Man one all the way up to Endgame. It's very different. I mean, the technology changes too because Tony, well, Tony Stark is always redesigning it <laughs> and, and making it better. To the comics as well at the same time. Yeah, it is. It's it's a lot of that fan service too. Where it's like, you know. I got to work. I was not doing any of the art personally, but, but working with some of these artists and, and 3d model like the artistry is incredible. And mm-hmm. it really like what, 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 what I saw with the Marvel films is everything began with that. Like mm-hmm. whether it's a single image, whether it's, you know, when we're going out to talent, let's say they wanted to go to, I don't know, Amanda Seyfried for Gamora. Mm-hmm. The guys would like paint Amanda Seyfried as Gamora. Oh. So during that meeting, <laughs> yeah, it would be like, so this is what it could look like. Isn't this cool? And, you know, and, and those actors like sometimes would say yes, based on how cool they could look as that character. Right. Um, so it was kind of interesting to see, you know, the people who said no, even though you're like, that would, I would have been like, yes. That's- <laughs> oh yeah. Right. Marvel. Yes, please. <laughs> on those sports yeah, as Iron Man. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You know, <laughs> so do you have a uh, favorite moment from working with the Marvel Universe or like a favorite thing you get to work on? Doesn't even have to be like a film specific. Could just be a, a moment from some ta- somewhere in time. There was, there's a couple of moments that stand out. And, and the first one is actually very beginning of my, my journey there, which was when we were doing the Thor. Um, we were shooting it in Manhattan Beach at the Raleigh Studios. That's where Marvel used to be when I first started. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and I just remember the first day walking onto the set of Asgard into the throne room. And it was like 90 foot walls, like in the set, you know, the size of an entire sound stage and just standing in the center of this room. And there's like this, you know, the Odin's throne is sitting. Yeah. And it's just like, you, you, you are that, that me when I was watching Jurassic Park was happening in real life as I was standing in, the, in a room. And it was mm-hmm. like, all of a sudden you're not in California anymore. You're in, you're, you're there you're in Asgard. In Asgard. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Wow. And, it was just this moment of just like you felt small <laughs> because it was <laughs> it was so beautifully constructed. Um, mm-hmm. And and secondarily, when we were doing Winter Soldier, mm-hmm. also shooting in in Manhattan Beach, I remember walking into the Shield headquarters and oh, feeling yeah. the same way, like walking down the hallways, going into Nick Fury's office with all these glass windows, walking yeah. into the elevator where there's the elevator, like just moments like that where you just feel. Like you're not even yourself, you know, and, and it's an out of body experience. It's like your inner kid comes back. Basically. <laughs> yeah. yeah, exactly. There's just like this giddiness of like <laughs> all of this hard work that you're putting in all these long hours. Mm-hmm. It's just seeing it all kind of come together and um, See the seeing the of artistry of so many talented people make something bigger yeah. than one person is is you know such a cool thing about you know this industry definitely and i feel like that's a a thing a lot of people don't realize is how much truly how many people are a part of productions and like how much work goes into these things that people love Mm -hmm. a lot of people just think oh there's the producer there's a writer there's you know there's people that do the set and things like that there's the actors (laughs) but they don't really realize how many other like substations of that 
and yeah. how big crews can be that put together these giant films and productions. Well, that's why it's like always a joy, like when you stay for the credits and such, and you look at how many people work on just one film, and it, that's their lives for however many years the production is. You know, yeah. uh, it could be a year, it could be six months, it could be two years, it could be five years. You know, it's uh, it's 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 one of the most like kind of gratifying things about this business, you know, about the film business, it's about the collaboration that happens on these sets, um, being in the Marvel universe and then really training your eye also like very much visually. Um, how did that kind of transition into you then doing cadence and then also now Dreamcatcher? So as I started, like 2015, as we were finishing Age of Ultron, mm-hmm. it was kind of becoming click. I, I really knew that I needed to start being more proactive in my own storytelling. Um, so I started to try to do like music videos and mm-hmm. did some did some music videos and like with like indie artists just to build a, a greater portfolio. Yeah. Um, and it was having conversations with people like Scott Derrickson and and you know. Kenneth Brown on like talking about filmmaking and, and really to, you know, uh, and under James Gunn, like these people who came up making, you know, low budget films and then suddenly make Marvel from John Watts on Spider-Man. Like that was a guy who, you know, came out was, of nowhere. <laughs> really? I mean, so funny talking to him. I don't know if I can actually tell this. I mean, it's fine. But he, uh, they had made this short film called clown mm-hmm. And they threw it up like and it was like this low budget like story. It was like super campy and terrible. And they threw it up on YouTube one night and they put a title card as a joke that said from producer Eli Roth. And they threw it up on YouTube and like went to bed. Two days later, CAA calls and they're like, hey, so we saw this short. Um, Are you making fun of Eli or like you actually like supportive of what he's doing? And they're like, no, we're just such huge fans. We're just huge fans of Eli. And they're like, okay, well, Eli wants to call you and have a conversation about turning this into a feature. And wow. so that's what happened. They, like, they, they did this thing kind of as a joke, and then mm-hmm. Eli Roth called them and was like, all right, we're going to make this movie about a killer clown. <laughs> um, and that was John Watts' first foray into like, directing. But you know, it's, it just goes to show you that there's never one way that something gets done. Right. Um, and I, I really respect that. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, just being able to kind of glean everything you can and then go okay, how do I translate this into not just like jumping off a cliff and saying, goodbye, day job, I don't need to pay my bills anymore. Um, So it was really about finding a balance. And at a point, I felt like I kind of plateaued. You know, Mm -hmm. I was at that point in my late 20s, going to 30 and thinking like, what am I doing? And I could have stayed and it would have been great. And I loved the the, the people there. Honestly, some of the most incredibly creative and kind, compassionate people I've ever met. But uh, you know, sometimes you have to just jump. And uh, yeah. I went and um, I did Cadence while I was still at Marvel because uh, mm-hmm. a lot of the guys who helped me make it worked there. Um, but we actually shot that, God, I think in 2015, 2014, 2014 or 2015. And then we did the film festival thing in like 2016. And then something I learned along that path was that the movie was too long because we were getting like, put into weird brackets of time because mm. short shorts like at festivals are always kind of programmed with like four to has uh, to be 12 yeah, minutes or has exactly, to be yeah you know and, 20 um, minutes yeah 
So it was like minus 28 minutes. And so it was like yeah. kind of hard to program. <laughs> um, so then we recut it in like 2017 or 2018. And then that was the version I kind of put out on, on YouTube and we ended up on Amazon. But um, gotcha. you just, it was one of those learning experiences where you're like, don't make a 28 minute short. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Cause it goes into that, that no man's land type of thing. Yeah. Like, is it this, is it that? I, I was told the exact same thing. That brings up a, an interesting point. I don't want to spoil the ending of Cadence, of course, but was that the ending that was on the other cut as well? Or did you change, was the, was it changed? Was it, what was changed about it basically? If you can say without spoiling anything. Yeah, it was, um, I just shortened, no, the ending was still the same uh, because the whole conceit, because I used to commute when I first started at Marvel, I was driving from uh, Manhattan Beach to Newport every day. It was like oh, wow. 72 miles or something. It was like oh, you know, two oh hours, like an hour there and an hour back. So I had a lot of time in the car. And yeah. <laughs> I had this like thought, and I was like, well, what if I made a story about uh, somebody who gets a voodoo doll and uses it on the wrong thing? That was mm. kind of just like the inception of just like right. that if somebody actually gets something that's so powerful, doesn't understand the, the scope of the power and, and then uses it on the wrong thing. Right. Um, and that kind of evolved into what the story was, but, but that was kind of the inception of it. Um, but when, when we were re-editing it, it was just taking out certain things that honestly were probably self-indulgent in certain ways or just like certain shots that lingered too long or like trying mm. to build atmospheric dread or what like things that, right. that may have worked in my head in 2016 that in you could cutting tighten. it i was like Meh. yeah you could tighten and make it you know flow a little better or whatnot uh yeah and i, I think also that kind of was your um the birth of kind of like your uh interest into like the supernatural and such and i can see where you pull a lot of influences mm -hmm. from um in in Dreamcatcher, like which can kind of yeah, and also carried over into Dreamcatcher, you know, with uh, with with the whole supernatural supernatural uh, uh, su such uh, with with the Dreamcatcher itself, and and tying that to the killer and how sure. he uses it and invades people's minds, basically. Well, also with the the quick uh, editing style you were doing using when same in Dreamcatcher when you know uh, Pierce is going through those moments of seeing. The Dreamcatcher and, and Cadence, you know, he's going through that with the mom and the uh, the brother, the same type of thing. So I was I was like putting that. And honestly, to me, Cadence, the whole story of Cadence kind of feels like the beginning of Dreamcatcher in a way with Pierce's character. I don't want to spoil anything, but do you yeah. kind of see what I'm? They, they kind of follow a similar path in a way. Okay, I'm picking up what you're laying down. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> okay. I don't want to spoil anything. No spoilers no, I didn't here. Think about any of this, but it's like, all right, yeah, okay. Great. Yeah. It could work. Well, um, like you kind of set the stage in cadence and then you're like carrying it out to more fruition in Dreamcatcher since you have a longer form medium now to exactly, go, yeah. go crazy with it and especially. And if you can do like, I don't know, I think it's just my I have an obsession with just like psychologically complex or like broken people. Um I noticed that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because the way you depict your characters are yeah, they're all broken people and they have something going on with them, whether it's in cadence with his uh problems with his mother or the girl that he meets in there that's had like her father died early. Um, you know, and or in Dreamcatcher, you know, you have the nerdy guy multiple. who's <laughs> like you have multiple people who have like uh back history that's you know dark and also they're they're very broken people and no one really has like any 
clear idea of what they want to where they kind of want to go really to also because they're very they're still trying to figure out their own lives in absolutely. a way absolutely i think yeah. that's um i don't know like, i think it's also just if you want to distill it down to anything it's identity yeah like, yeah i was gonna say that that's, that really comes into play in dreamcatcher the whole identity aspect and and how do we who are we at and the core? i feel like a lot of a lot of youth these days they especially now struggle with that like who are they type of thing and i think dreamcatcher is a perfect you know writing up of that you know it, it conveys that emotion because the characters in dreamcatcher are of that age group you know right there's so many influences on us today social media wise and you know likes and things like that it's like who are we what are we trying to do what do we want to be yeah who do we want to be ultimately and i think dreamcatcher captures that definitely thank you no i i agree with you i think it's important to explore that in, in a way where it's like if, if you can relate to an audience member hopefully by trying to connect with them in a way where it's like oh i know that person or or i see traces of that person in my sister or my friend or myself there is suddenly some sort of like tethered connection that then we we kind of feel a little more invested in the movie mm -hmm. um i think the downside of that is obviously with genre movies you're already in a divisive genre mm -hmm. like people are are a or b and there's really not a like a and a half there's no mid middle ground <laughs> yeah there's, there's nothing and so you know you have to kind of make a decision when you're going into it and you're either going to say like hey i'm going to make friday the 13th or right. you're going to go in and say, hey, I'm going to try to make something like, uh, you know, The Sixth Sense or, or some, you know, like you, right. you can't really have it rarely works when you're like somewhere in the middle because fans of of the genre are are extremely opinionated. <laughs> and, right. Um, there's yes. like the, the hardcore slasher horror film buffs and then there's you know psychological thriller and then there's yeah. you know there's so all yeah there's so many layers of it yeah and as you yeah sub genres so um you know like definitely dreamcatcher i think really falls into more of the supernatural slasher film um and really uh fits well in that genre and i i see like a lot of the influences from those types of films and also i i love the opening of dreamcatcher because it's very it reminded me of a Halloween movie where, you know, Michael is tracking down the, the victim and we're just kind of seeing his point of view sometimes. And, you know, in those films, they would always have him like breathing like heavily, like, <laughs> you know, <laughs> and watching the victim. And we beautiful. all know they're going to die. So yeah. I love that you kind of made like a nice little homage to that in that particular scene when the, the one of the agents is like going down the hall and trying to find like uh the money I, I think it's the money that's like she's trying to pick up at, uh, for her client no better thing yeah yeah it, it's got a saw-esque feel to it too with the the shots and just how dingy and broken that place looks mm -hmm. yeah, yeah. It's, so it's kind, of, it's kind of funny because i think the like what my intention was for better or for worse is i think that the la is there's like two ways you can portray la there's the la la land romanticism mm -hmm. and then there's like the night crawler it's mm -hmm. a gym and right. I think the that, underground. Yeah, it's 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 it, and there, there's sometimes like you know in a, a rom com there's the middle ground where it just kind of looks like a city. Right. But like when you're making a a film with like some sort of style, it's either really dingy and disgusting or it's like super romanticized and beautiful. Right. You know? And 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 I wanted to try to find a way to do both, where right. we would have the shots of like saw and dingy underground warehouse, but then we'd have these beautiful shots in the hills looking out right. into the city yep. and seeing the lights and like you know it just juxtaposes that that idea just going back to what we were saying with identity where it's like 
you have the people who have, and then you have the people who have not. And Los mm-hmm. Angeles is that it's the people who right. have and the people who have not. And there's like sort of a middle ground, but not really. Those are the people who are trying to figure out which one they are. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, it, absolutely. Yeah. yeah I mean, I mean, definitely you see that, that contrast between the two classes actually of people in a way. And, and, um, it, it's, it's definitely, I, I, I see a lot of your social statement in, in that, um, and, and influence in there. So, um, you know, I, I think also what, what were you trying to convey for, I would say, what, what is your opinion on more of the social media aspect? Cause social media in the film is it's, it's definitely brought up and also kind of the millennial generation. I love, uh, the one quote I have it here. Um, millennials are like sheep. Yeah. Millennials are sheep heading to the slaughter, which I thought was a great quote to set up the whole film. (laughs) So I was so bummed. They didn't put that in the trailer. Like I I just, um, the marketing (laughs) side of this was a bummer because I didn't have any say in any of the marketing stuff. So it's Mm -hmm. like, there's so many things that I was like, "Ah, I would have done that. But, um, with, with the social, the, the, the social media side of it, I thought it was important to integrate in a way, but also not make the movie about Instagram or about, mm-hmm. because I feel like then suddenly you dated the film in a way where it's like, if in 15 years, we're not talking about Instagram as much, then it suddenly it's like, it's every joke or everything is referential to that. Right. It's like, you're, you're kind of stuck. Mm-hmm. And something that really these 90s movies did, these ensemble thrillers that was so exciting was they were dated in a way, but they were still timeless in certain aspects right. in terms of how the characters interacted. And I wanted to make it clear that this is a day and age of, you know, in, in using identity is obviously the theme, but mm-hmm. the, the, the idea of perception and the perception versus reality. So let's create the life that we have. And then we have the life that is perceived. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of, a, I think the timeless idea where it's like, yeah, Instagram is the way to see that now. I can see the life you want me to see you have, but it doesn't mean that I'm not doing X, Y, and Z. And like, what does that life look like? Um, Again, kind of juxtaposing those against each other. Yeah. And for me going along with social media, I know Dylan has a really big quote at the, at the end, one tweet and you're at the bottom. It kind of made me really, I mean, we're in the world right now where cancel culture is a thing. Like everybody's being canceled for anything, you know, under the sun type of thing. And you'll Mm -hmm. see a, a new celebrity or, uh, maybe a YouTuber, an Instagrammer, TikTok, or whatever, come up on Twitter, you know, with cancel, whatever. So what does that also say about that type? Because that, that's something new that we really haven't experienced because with the power of social media now, we have that. Because before, you heard about that stuff through, you know, the news and, and magazines and such. And now it's at the click of, a, you know, our finger to see those type of things. So what, what do you have to say about the, the whole cancel culture? Because, like, Dylan's character really spoke to me in that way because we are truly dealing with that right now in this time we live in totally i and it's funny too because i when I, I wrote this movie in 2018 so it's like <laughs> the the cancel culture of it all was was less i guess uh a zeitgeist moment i mean mm-hmm. we had kind of the me too movement happening we had you know certain right. movements happening in, in, in hollywood and the weinstein stuff was happening and yeah um as as far as it's tough because i i think that if you're a person like Dylan. D- Dylan suffers from the fact that he has become a brand. Mm-hmm. He, he has become Dreamcatcher. He he has become something that is no longer a person, but is an entity. And I think that that if you can carry that over, that's the element that I found interesting. Where it's like 
if you lose that sense of self, then you kind of lose your sense of integrity. You kind of lose your sense of, you lose your sense of touch with reality. And that's where Dylan finds himself. You know, Dylan Mm -hmm. finds himself in a place where it's like, I just have to keep going because if I stop, then it's over. Like I don't have anything else. Right. And Um, he'll lose, he feels like he's holding on to his, trying to hold on to his humanity, but really in essence, he's just become, in in essence, a slave to the system. Absolutely. Yeah. And and I think, you know, the, the cancel culture of it all, it's like, there's certain things where absolutely people should have accountability for what they're doing. Right. Um, mm-hmm. I think that there's a, you know, I, it's, it's, it goes both ways. Cause you can, it, it can be a witch hunt in certain ways because if somebody yeah. wronged you or somebody did something with the, like you said, the click of a button or some tabs, like you can throw somebody under a bus and, right. and that's a tough world because you, you have to be cognizant and we should, I think it's, it creates an accountability of, us as people in a world where there is social media, we need to be accountable for the things we say. We well, need like, to be accountable. Yeah. And it's also, we're trying to figure out our change in mental consciousness too, because we've never had to, we've never had these many platforms to really discuss mm-hmm. or even talk about some of the issues that are so prevalent that have been in our society. They're just now, it's like we've ripped the bandaid off of, you know, every social thought that we can think of at the, yeah. at this moment in time. Um, especially now that we have so much time on our hands <laughs> to yeah. being home for, because of COVID, but you know, it's like, you know, yeah, it, it's really starting to, I'm glad there's awareness, but it gets to a point where, you know, sometimes it, it, it go, it's, it's taken to an extreme. And that's, I yep. think also what the film's kind of bringing up is like, it can be taken. The extreme is this is the worst case scenario. What it could could be when you when you're on that platform where all eyes are on you. Yeah, it's even more magnified. Yeah, exactly. You could say something that in the right context is probably fine, mm-hmm. but in the wrong context, if somebody reads it and goes, "Now nah, that rubbed me the wrong way," you're right. done. Right. Like, yep. And it's and like how that it's it's like how the agent basically. Uh, gets the kids on camera when Pierce gets, I'm, you know, I'm not going to spoil anything, but discovers another world, discovers (laughs) another world. Let's just say that. And, um, you know, she gets it all on camera and it's like, I'm, I'm, I have the power now I'm going to use this against you. I don't care what you, if you call the cops or not, I have the money and I have the power and I have the, like, I can spin this however I want, which I thought was a great scene. Cause it's like, wow, okay, she now, the tables have turned for them. And, and it, it shows how weak those characters are. Exactly. It shows, yeah, if, if these characters are willing to, they, one, it shows how scared they are of, of not even knowing what is out there, but yeah. willing, the willingness to be like, oh, we're going to believe you because you've recorded it. Right. And I don't know how I could be perceived if, you know, you, you cut something up and suddenly I look like a bad guy. And how willing this you'll throw your best friend under a bus just because it's like, I don't want to look bad. Right. Um, and then, yeah, so I think that's, it is kind of happening nowadays. Yeah. And I think, I think the biggest thing, like you said, is it's all about context, how you, t- how, how you right. take something and then you could spin it. How, like what Elliot was saying, you could spin it however you want, like in the film, but also in real life too. It's all about the context of the situation. And if you're not there and you say something and somebody else just takes that and runs with it, it could be completely blown out of proportion from what you were trying to say. Totally. Yeah. But speaking of uh, Dreamcatcher, 
I know you've gotten this question a lot and you've answered it a lot. Uh, I'm going to try to spin it a little bit different way. <laughs> in regards to uh, Dreamcatcher, The Mask, I-, I know you went with a DJ, which is very, very unique for a slasher film in general. Uh, Elliot and I were talking before. It kind of looks like to me like The Plague Doctor in a way. From uh, the time, like from medieval the, times. <laughs> yeah. What was the inspiration and like the whole design? Like what, what led to that, that type of design with that pointy chin and the... I know you're like Dreamcatcher S, but like what what brought you to Dreamcatcher in the first place? Um, uh, it's two things. The first one was when I was when I was brought on to do this movie. Um, there was actually no script or anything, but I knew the producers, and they were like, "Hey, we have some money. We want to make you know a love letter to the '90s. Uh, mm-hmm. That's that's an homage to you know the Janie Blanks and the Wes Cravens and the yeah. Carpenter people that were doing these you know '90s ensemble films." And I was like, "Ah, oh, great! I love the '90s." Um, and they were like, but we wanted to have something to do with music too. We'd love to inject a music element into it because, you know, we're all such music fans. And I was like, oh, okay. Um, so I went on like a walk and I was trying to figure it out. You know, how do you, how do you integrate slasher music ensemble? And I was like, EDM? Like mm-hmm. we, we buy that Marshmallow and Daft Punk and Dead Mouse. These are people who are their masks. Yeah. And so if, if I put on the Dead Mouse helmet, I could say that I'm Dead Mouse. Right. And so I, I liked this idea that we could create a character whose facade could be transferable right. um, without any kinds of questions asked, where it's like, well, why is that mask there? Like, why is it that mask? Well, that mask is the mask of someone who is famous. So, mm-hmm. like, it was a real easy way for me to not have to waste page count establishing a mythos. Right. Like, that's the mask he wears, and whoever wants to put on that mask could wear it for whatever reason they want to. Um, the design came... I was working with a, uh, an old coworker named Josh Herman, who I work with at Marvel, um, who had designed like Groot for Guardians of the Galaxy. And he did a lot of the Iron Man suits. And he's just a, a real artistic genius in terms of creating things that have practicality, but are also kind of uh, interesting in, in with certain design elements. Mm-hmm. Um, and we started with like, he did a bunch of 2D stuff. And I was like, ah, I was, I'm having a hard time vibing with it. And, um, then I liked, he, he presented this, it was like a jester mask that had this like kind of pointed mm. chin and this cool like Mardi Gras design on the face. And I was like, there's something about this. It's not this, but there's something about this. Yeah. And then we kind of injected the, the barn owl vibe of just like vacant eyes. They're right. creepy already. <laughs> and yeah. it's stagnant. And I love the idea of, of, of a stagnant element to something that's so frenetic like EDM. And mm-hmm. then, you know, kind of exaggerating the human face, pulling the face down, creating a more established chin and using the, the sharp angles to kind of create a sense of modernism. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the silver was, was to keep it something that wasn't so egregious. I didn't want it to get silly. And I felt like when you do masks, uh, it can get silly pretty fast as you use a lot of color. Mm-hmm. Um, and it looked, you know, with the angles too and the right lights and the right, like you could do some really cool stuff with lighting the way it hits yeah. the mask. Yeah. And then the, the final thing was the, the actual overlay of the weaving onto the face and using the eye as the center. Cause the center of a dream catcher is typically what they say is like this portal between and, um, the dead and the living basically. Right. Exactly. Yeah. And I like this idea that that's his, that's his eye. It's like a void. It's like the soul, like, is there a soul or is it just black? Um, mm-hmm. and originally it was going to light up. There was a whole idea where the, the lights, there'd be a red light that kind of wove. So mm-hmm. the mask could like come on. 
And um, in the end, it just felt impractical. And it also just kind of started to get a little sci-fi-y to the uh, yeah. point where it was like, here comes the killer in the hallway. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Right. You're, you're not terrified. You're kind of like, what? Well, I think going without the lights was it was a great idea because it, the you know the DJs you mentioned marshmallow a white helmet very bright uh, dead Mao, you know the words scrolling across even with Daft Punk the late Daft Punk the gold helmets and they had words scrolling across and you went like the opposite of that EDM is very flashy and bright and you know loud and you went very mute and just kind of like very a dark and, and on sinister yeah. in a way but still still in that 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 form just in a different way which i thought was really cool and if yeah. you guys have ever seen um just a, a, there was a little bit of an homage to an old brian de palma movie called phantom of the paradise um and if you haven't, I haven't, if you haven't seen, seen it. it i would check it out there's okay. there's a small like to them um uh, gotcha. which is also it's a it's a movie that deals with faust and a movie that deals with music mm-hmm. and uh got a really kind of dated but interesting looking design for one of the masks so gotcha interesting so do you actually like edm that's something i had to ask <laughs> this is an autobiography guys i don't know yeah. how to tell you um <laughs> I, I, I i was waiting for this part of the interview to tell you that this is all based on a true story okay oh uh, yeah so gotcha. you're, you're dream catcher oh oh know, you are dream catch ah gotcha I, pulls out the pulls out the mask puts <laughs> yeah ready <up>. to <laughs> rage uh i some medium yes i think like okay. i think there's some i love the uh yeah it's great music to write to because it's just kind of like mm. you can play it in the background you can hype yourself up the thing that i loved about it when i was writing the film was there's like a heartbeat to it there's like right. a melodic mm-hmm. like it's like a writing it's, it's it is a movie in itself there's mm-hmm. the ups and the downs and the drops and the you know like it it is kind of evocative of the film itself but um yeah i wouldn't say that i'm like die hard but i like it that aspect of using the heartbeat as kind of like the pulse for the film that really is well conveyed and also you know really kind of lends itself to also kind of the internal realm that you're trying to portray on screen too because when pierce goes into her hallucination you know it's you know, it, it, it's very internalized and we see you use a lot of montage editing in that and which harkens back to cadence, which I thought was really cool how you made that parallel <laughs> there. Um, and yeah, really that yeah, the music becomes almost a character in itself in a certain mm-hmm. way, too, because it's part of th- th- this kind of corporeal realm between the dream world and the living world in a way and i think you're you're, you're kind of using it almost like they're stuck in purgatory sure yeah yeah you know? i like that yeah that's you how did. i kind of like because that's the multi-layeredness of it and I, I think that was really well done so thank you yeah thank you <laughs> you're very welcome um well one thing i want to talk about yeah. is uh Why i know you had some slow <laughs> what's up <laughs> yeah <laughs> <laughs> was the uh the influences that were on Dreamcatcher. I know that uh you, you the lighting is very reminiscent of In the Mood for Love uh, for sure. Yeah. Uh so what other what other influences? I I'm sure that was one of the influences, right? Absolutely. I'm yeah. Sure so what other influences were kind of hidden in Dreamcatcher were brought Dreamcatcher to be what it is? Uh definitely Neon Demon. Um mm-hmm. 
there's just a really interesting way that Los Angeles was portrayed in that film and the lighting, like it's, it's so, I mean, like all of his films are kind of lit that way, <laughs> like mm-hmm. drive and only God forgives. And like, they're all kind of that, but I thought that that film in particular, it, it lended itself to the actual narrative in a cool mm-hmm. way. Um, uh, Tenebrae and Suspiria, which yep. were both Giallo films um, mm-hmm. back in the 70s. Also high color, high contrast. Uh, and, and Seven, um, mm-hmm. a big Fincher fan. And, and I, when I was talking to Matt Plaxico, our DP, like early on, it was kind of like, I want to use sodium vapor light in the settings like when we can. You know, obviously when you're in a yeah. club, you can't really use sodium vapor. So it's like, how can we, <laughs> how can we do that with like, neighborhood shots or like sitting in a room can we use you know practical lamps that kind of have a cool sodium vapor vibe um but gives a specific type of lighting aspect to the look of the film totally and so you don't have to just have i think the thing with neons and and bright colors which are really it can get exhausting Mm -hmm, you know mm -hmm. and if you overuse it oversaturate for lack of better terms like I think the audience gets desensitized and it loses its effectiveness. Right. And so it was kind of like, let's use the first act as a way where it's like, let's have some cool, interesting lighting setups, but like, let's not really inject the the colors and everything until they're at the club. And then let's yes. combine those visual elements of, of the kind of sodium vapor and the, the, uh, the high, high contrast colors and put those in the third act. So okay. it was like visual style, visual style, and then combining them both at the end um, to kind of tie the whole film together. Visually. Yeah, I noticed the contrast start to change throughout as we start to learn more about who the killer might be and everything, because it's kind of also adding to the cl- us figuring out the like bringing everything more into the clear in a way. Sure. Visually. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And, and I guess the last one would be Scream in terms of the writing. I tried mm-hmm. to, to, to you know, frame the structure. I think what Kevin Williamson did with that script that's so brilliant is he kind of defied a lot of the like screenwriting rules in terms of setup. Like he has a really long first act mm-hmm. and then he has like a pretty short second act and then he's got a long third act. Right. And I think that the, the, the issue, <laughs> some people think that the second act of the film drags, but to me, it's like, that's such part of the third act. And the, to me, the second act is actually very short. Um, and the first act is pretty long, you know, the first act is probably 40 minutes long. And then the second act is probably only like 15 minutes. And then the third Mm -hmm. act is the last hour or whatever. But, uh, I tried to, to try to follow that because I loved the way that movie feels because you have somebody die in like the first five, 10 minutes, but then nobody dies until like 45. That's true. Yeah, that is very true. (laughs) There is a long period of time where it's not just about who's going to be next on the chopping block, but like taking the time to get to know who these people are. And then in the last like hour, you start killing them off. off. (laughs) But it's like, you don't have, it's not like we, we, you know, do a cutaway to a gas station to watch somebody get gutted just because it's like, ah, I got to get to another death scene. Yeah. I mean, you got to have, you got to have development for your characters. And also that whole time you're building that suspense factor, which I think is the most important thing in horror is that suspense, because ultimately yeah. that's what gets people on the edge of their seat. And then the payoff, you know, whatever that may be, but right. that's, what's keeping you going through the whole film is that suspense factor. When's the next thing going to pop out? When's someone going to die? That type of thing. Right. Absolutely. We're always fascinated by the murder mystery. 
<laughs> yeah. You know, it's so, so prevalent. Agatha Christie such a great writer. Exactly. Like, yeah. <laughs> I mean, yeah, there's a reason why she wrote so many. So, so many. And it's all kind of the same story where it's like yeah. a group of people, somebody did something, <laughs> die, 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 reveal. Yeah, let's hey. let's gather gather all the uh, culprits and be like, okay, which one is it? Hmm, you oh, were dead, here at this dead. time, and you were here at this time. <laughs> yeah, I, I love I love those moments too. So I yeah I, I think yeah it it's definitely evolved. You know, it's been an offshoot of you know you have your the murder mystery, you then have your horror, and horrors just kind of like evolved from the murder mystery stories of you know sherlock holmes and agatha christie mm-hmm. um you know all all the way back to, until then i mean those were like the first couple of murder mystery writers that conan doyle and and uh uh you know agatha christie you know it's like they started it and then like horror just took it off and went more violent and, with they, it. <laughs> and they made all different types of different you know subgenres of horror if you want to call it that mm-hmm. uh question so I know Scream has multiple movies. Um, is the Dreamcatcher going to uh, be catching more dreams? Yes. <laughs> uh, yeah, I uh, guess we'll see. I mean, I um, I wrote a script for a sequel. It's it's there is a script done. Um, I think you just you know, obviously sequels depend on reception and and how people you know if they if they kind of embrace the character and the story. But um, I think one of the things I learned more than anything at Marvel is just franchisability. Mm-hmm. You know, if you're going to write something, especially in a genre place, don't purposefully go in and go, well, the movie only works if there's a sequel. You know, mm-hmm. it's like it's like people who make a short, and it's like, well, the short only works if you finance my feature. Like, yeah, this is yeah. the scene from the bigger movie. Like, I think the if you can use some sort of of foresight into saying there is a potential for world, you know, world building, um, mm-hmm. that's great. But but if it feels mm-hmm. like the whole movie's fulcrum balances on the fact that like you know you leave them with a, a cliffhanger that has no real you know like uh, conclusion, then I think you've cheated the audience. Right. Um, so yeah, there there is a world where there is a sequel, but you know, if not, then then the script will stay yeah. on my laptop, and maybe I'll <laughs> release it on Twitter in a couple of years. <laughs> Who knows? You never know. <laughs> yeah, we'll do a we'll do a, a live one man show at the Palladium. I, I told you, you'll just pull the mask out, you'll put it on, and that's it. That's it. Put a top so, hat on. Yeah. <laughs> where is? Do you have the mask? Mm-hmm. No. They were very expensive, and um, the producers kept. We had two of them. We had a stunt one, and we had the, the hero one. Um, mm-hmm. But we hired. I called in a favor from my Marvel days. This company, SCPS Unlimited, they do. Uh, they did like the Crossbones helmet in Civil War. They did the Black. Oh, okay. Like they do a lot of um, 3D printing and stuff. So we actually had the mask mm-hmm. 3D printed and then sculpted and painted, and um, oh. just because you can't really shortchange the iconography of that, like right, yeah. It and, stands and out so much, yeah. That's you like you don't want to go to the store and just buy like a, a mask because then it's a masquerade lock. mask. Yeah. Ooh, oh, yeah, yeah, right. Scary. Yeah, yeah. no. Hey, did yeah. you get that at the dollar store? Yeah, yeah. no. I, I was curious who made it because I I was thinking it might have been Legacy. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you know Legacy, yeah. No, we we couldn't. Uh, there's some great guys there that I know, but I think that they're probably out of our price range. <laughs> I guess it's, it's a little different too. Legacy doesn't do as much 3d printing 
Um, mm-hmm. They do a lot of like sculpted, like hand sculpted mm-hmm. stuff where, you know, they, yeah. they don't, the 3D printing stuff only kind of comes in later. Um, but, but SCPS does, that's what they do. They do hand cut, you know, like cuff links and mask pieces and like these yeah. uh, more attachment elements. Okay. Cool. Um, but yeah. Yeah. Well, maybe you'll see a couple of, you know, a couple more dream catchers running around at Halloween this year. Maybe. They might just be me. I want that <laughs> mask. Hey, I mean, I'll, I'll, I'll wear I know it. Trevor I'll does too. I can be pretty, pretty terrifying. <laughs> I know. You, 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 you could probably you you, it would work for you. you yeah. That's what I'm saying. Yeah. I was saying that last night. I was like, I got the chin for it. It'll fit me. <laughs> it's all about the chin, man. You available all... for the sequel? Yeah. I, I'm ready. <laughs> I, I'm a little, I'm a little tall. I might be a little bit too tall, but they might know who the killer is right away. Yeah. Well, this is foreshadowing guys. This is foreshadowing. <laughs> yeah, yeah. We're, we're, we're talking actually about? having a pitch here. Yes. We're, we're not doing a podcast. <laughs> yeah. This is elite. Uh, we're yes. going to be in the sequel. Yes. Yeah, so this will be part of the, like the bonus features. So. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Yes. It's going to go. Yeah. It's going to go into the second edit of the film that comes out, you know, later on. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so I, I had a technical question. Uh, Jacob, uh, so what kind of cameras did you guys use on Dreamcatcher, and what was kind of like your workflow from pre-production, post-production, or pre pre-production, production, and post-production? Well, the we shot on the Alexa, the full-body Alexa, mm-hmm. um, which is a very large camera. Um, okay, <laughs> and and I remember when we were talking because we could have shot on the mini. I actually think that the full-body shoots better like the the mm-hmm. mini is is beautiful and shoots in 4k and the full body only shoots in 2k but but oh, okay. there's just something about the quality of the image that i just liked a lot more the problem was when you have a giant camera and most of the movie is is you know the dp with like the scorpion rig holding mm-hmm. camera um there were tight spaces that made very interesting shooting challenges um specifically i would say the red room scene is is was the most challenging thing in the film to shoot simply because we were in a small fairly small room with no movable walls and we had eight seven or eight characters that are all looking different ways right trying to get all of this in in you know without being able to fly one of the walls it was it was a very challenging setup and it was a great lesson of saying like don't write a scene in one room with eight people um where you know you can't control the setting because right i'm i feel blessed that our eye lines were right mm-hmm. but like there's just that moment when you're in the edit and you're like yeah uh, okay so we had to cheat some of the edit to make sure all the eye lines lined up but um yeah with the with the alexa yeah and then the end of the film, so we kind of wanted to create this idea of, of the way that the the actual filming was done would kind of change. So there's more static shots in the opening. Yeah. Like the first act is, is more still and, and a little less frenetic. And then when we get to the club, it's more handheld. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And then uh, when we get to the finale, it's all, uh, it's either dolly or, or handheld. Um, right. We only use Steadicam once. And that was for the, we had for the club shots when we were with the crowd, we had a Steadicam that day um the rest of of the film was shot handheld like holding on with like a scorpion rig mm. help hold the camera up but and all of the deaths are actually shot in one in a run even when we shot the original deaths they were all in one take um, oh really they did end up getting cut like up into pieces when they're actually uh. happening but all of the master of the uh, death scenes were all shot in a single take so we kind of created oh, wow. this, this idea of the original thought was going to be that all the deaths would be oneers, and so oh, okay. it would all be and like consecutively. 
it, it was cool cinematically. I think mm-hmm. that it just didn't, it wouldn't work for the normal audience because they would have just been like, it, it, it's not as tense to do that because you're mm-hmm. just, there's just a fluidity to it where it feels rehearsed and right. it's cool. But I think an audience would just be like, that's staged. Yeah. So, yeah. You kind of uh, have to break it up. Yeah. It up. Gotcha. Yeah. And as far as your editing style, what were some of the influences for the editing style for the film? Because I know um, obviously montage was used for the like hallucination of uh, that Pierce has. Um, yeah. And then what was, what were some other influences that you kind of drew upon? Um, I storyboard everything. Like, so yeah. there was, there was kind of already an idea obviously your storyboards change when you're on set because of practical challenges, but there was kind of a semblance of knowing hopefully what the movie was going to look like when you're kind of, when you're filming it uh, in terms of, of scene layout, how it would kind of come together. Um, Mm -hmm. And so in the edit, Cody, our editor, honestly, the, the trip scene, he cut that in the script. It was actually written a certain way. It had the colors. It had all of this stuff baked into the actual script. So when he was doing the assembly cut, it was fairly easy for him to look at the script and go, okay, now it's this, now it's this, now it's this. What he did that was so cool um, was a lot of these overlays and, and to create a, a sense of depth, um, mm-hmm. which didn't come from me at all. It was something that he was like, hey, I think this looks cool. And it bleeds all of these things together in a way right. where it feels like moving art. And I was like, I love this. Um, yeah. And so we just experimented with that a little bit more in terms of the his original version was more sequitur it kind of felt a little more like moving and moving and moving and then we're here and like i just was like if we're gonna go weird like let's just go weird and you know let's cut in and out of all of these things and like that to me is is pierce's identity crisis and Mm -hmm. that's what it is like to have these moments to have these blips of uncertainty where it's like your logic and your your insecurities and all these things are bleeding together in a way that it might not quite make sense, right. but it's, it's, it's like trying to get in somebody's head. That's like oatmeal. Right. And oatmeal. you're reliving certain moments over or certain feelings over and over. And hearing and, the phrases that, that right. we, I think we, we, as people, like we have these perceptions that people might think of us a certain way. Mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. for someone like Pierce, I think she internalizes all of that. And so we're getting a glimpse of that internalization process. And so the more it felt frantic and and sad and despondent, I thought was really important. Um, Mm -hmm. And and then for the rest of the edit, like it's Cody was was so talented and and we just, it was, it was more about um, pacing to be perfectly honest. Mm -hmm. And, and I've had to fight the producers on some things that I thought were important. Like if it was up to them, the movie would have been an hour and 32 minutes. but I, I did fight them back on a couple of scenes. Like the original cut was two hours and eight minutes. Like that was okay. the first cut. So we cut an additional like 28 minutes, I think off that because it's an oh, hour wow. and 41. But mm-hmm. um, it, I don't know. It's, it's, you have to eventually learn. We screened it for uh, a few different people. And, and one of them was this producer um, named uh, Mark Johnson. And Mark Johnson has done the Chronicles of Narnia movies. He did Rain Man. Yeah. He did Breaking Bad. He just mm-hmm. did the little things for HBO. Like this guy is a he's like yeah. 78 uh, <laughs> and a genius. Like he's, he's so smart and has been in the business for so long. And he watched it, one of the longer cuts. And he was like, it's a good movie. That could be a better movie. Mm-hmm. And he was like, I think you need to do this. I think you need to cut this. I think you, and it was just like, 
all of these things. And I was like, you know, that he's right. If I know they'll be missing, but the audience members won't. And he's exactly, like, yeah. the thing about genre is like you, when you're balancing these tone elements of like satire and tension, he's like, you're running into this issue where sometimes you're breaking your tension with a joke. And he's like, I would cut those moments when you can. So the pacing feels like more fluid. Right. Um, so there was a, a great learning curve in terms of just like things working on the page and feeling like they're, you know, oh yeah, this would make sense. And when you're mm-hmm. watching it, you're like, I think it makes sense. But then when somebody's like, yeah, but if I cut it out, the movie still works and we don't need to worry yep. about this. So there was right. some of that too. Cool. Cool. Yeah, that, that's definitely true. You know, when, when you're looking back over your own work, we're our own like worst critics in a way, <laughs> right? But we, we have to realize that ultimately when the art gets out there, if, if you cut something and you don't say anything about it, no one's ever going to know about it. Only you. <laughs> yeah. Or if you screw up on stage, for example, or line, no one's going to know but you. Just keep yeah. going. The audience never, never is let in on that unless you let them know that you, you screwed up or something. Yeah. You have those, ah, I messed up. Oh, oh, yeah. oh darn. Take, oh, it, take like, it back to one. Back to yeah, one, guys. Yeah, yeah. Back to one. Just a live show uh, cut. Can we can we, can we, can we, we go cut? again? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> well, Jacob, we, we really appreciate you giving uh, your time today. Before we let you go, uh, what do you have coming up that you can share that's uh, not, uh, you know, secret, too secret? <laughs> um, nothing. I can't. There's there's a couple things that that uh, could be potentially very exciting. Um, uh-huh. uh, I'm aiming. It looks like I'll be shooting another film in the fall okay. um, that is not horror. Uh, oh, cool. But so I'm kind of excited about that because I do love the ability to kind of play chameleon in, in the filmmaking world mm-hmm. um but it's a story i think is going to be really cool it's kind of uh perks of being a wallflower meets die hard um and a and a interesting combo two yeah. of my favorite movies <laughs> it's like a, an action movie told through the lens of a coming of age story um okay. so we'll say that and then a couple writing things that could be also very cool but reluctant to say much because you know nda but uh mm-hmm. yeah exactly yeah <laughs> that's why i said secret yes <laughs> i i had a question for you guys like i, I would be curious to know and after this conversation like what movies inspire you guys like what 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 do you guys get excited about Ooh. you want to go first trevor <laughs> no 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 ellie you, oh, you take okay. it away well i would say definitely um akira kurosawa films uh you know dream seven samurai uh we we just we also did an episode on yasujiro ozu ozu really influences me um i we you know the thing is like a lot of i i I pay attention to a lot of world uh direct like directors from around the world um so i would say yeah i mean like blade runner was a huge influence too um visually music wise uh since you know i'm a sound guy i'm i'm tuned into more of the music and the sound for films too um so definitely yeah blade runner lord of the rings uh citizen kane uh gosh um any of the frank capra any any of frank capra's films it's a wonderful life you can't take it with you um uh what else uh mr deeds goes uh and mr smith goes to washington uh jimmy stewart really like i i I loved watching every christmas it's a wonderful life so Yeah, it's been that. That's kind of my influences. Where I kind of oh, I love with. it, and of yeah, of course action films. Of course, you know Schwarzenegger, yeah, Stallone. Mine, mine's gonna mine's gonna be a little <laughs> bit shorter. Um, <laughs> uh, for me, I mean, probably my favorite film of all time, and I know it's like not a film that is probably Back to the Future. 
I draw a classic. so much like huh? <laughs> that's a classic. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, yeah, it's a classic in a way. Mm-hmm. I, I just I don't know. Uh, for me, for me, I, I, I love the horror genre. Like if I ever like wrote or directed anything, I've always wanted to do like uh, uh, psychological horrors because I've always been interested in that. But I've also been interested in like, you know, Friday the 13th, the original and Scream, the original and things. So like when I watched this film, I was like, I could see myself being that killer, right? Like (laughs) those are the type of things that I would enjoy doing. Kind of like, you know, it's a little twisted in a way, but I've always found it interesting because like the killer to me is always, you know, yeah, they're the killer. They're going to take people out. But also there's so much more you could build onto that character that the audience may never know about that could influence your performance in a way. Right. Besides just being, I'm going to kill all these people because reasons type yeah. of thing. There's a psychology. So, so definitely, definitely the horror genre. And I mean, Back to the Future is a, is a huge influence. But uh, I, I like older directors. I, uh, well, well, definitely um, like uh, Star, Star Wars, of course, right? Well, yeah, of course, of course, of course, of course. Of course. Um, uh, what is it? Oh, 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 I've forgotten. Uh, a lot of German cinema. Ah, love German cinema. Yeah, yeah. I, I feel like that's kind of got a uh, the horror esque feel to it too, with with the uh, you know, the style they go for and the way it's very you know, a uh, little bit creepyish in some in some turns in certain films and things. So. I don't know. I've always been, I've always really been interested in like the horror and that type of genre and the thriller genre. I, I've always, that's if I ever, you know, directed or produced or directed or uh, wrote something, I would want to do something in that vein. I've, you know, done a couple films myself here and there that I've created, but never stepped into that genre. Cause I want to do something kind of like you, right? I want to do something that reinvents what you're doing. Like you did a slasher film, but you did it in a totally different way in today's time. And you, uh, you know, added things that are relevant today that you didn't even know at the time when you wrote it that were going to be so important with them with you know social media and things like that and you made it current with you know using a dj and in that type of setting so i want to do something in that vein it's just i don't know what yet (laughs) yeah we're still fighting yeah yeah i appreciate you for asking that they put me on the spot i was like uh i know i think it's fascinating to get other people's perspectives on you know that kind of stuff because there's so much out there to watch and it's just we're in the day and age where we have access to thank god we have criterion collection you know thank god we have streaming services where they're now offering all these older films that we can have access to because back in the day you you had to go to a theater like maybe a limited amount of theaters that might show it once in a great while like every 10 years or something i mean i'm still waiting for them to release uh what was it napoleon uh abel gantz's napoleon okay. uh the only one who has it has a print of it is uh francis ford coppola and he will not release it oh <laughs> so wine that has been your yeah he's he's just watching it <laughs> and no, like preserving yes yeah. well my mom my mom actually got to see a live performance of that back in the 70s i think and it was a live orchestra to that picture. But after that, it was like a one-time thing. And then after that, they put it into the archives and it hasn't been, it's, it's very rare that you can find a print of that film. And it's, and for me, like when I, uh, my film teacher in, in school, in college, uh, literally had a VHS tape that was falling apart of that film. And we watched it and it was like, 
even the few minutes that we saw of it, I was like, wow, this visually is just gorgeous. It's, it's a work of art, literally. So um, just the way he framed and, he, he, you know, he was, he was a photographer, so he, it, can, it translated to film, which is he had that eye for sure. it. Sure. That's so. amazing. I'm going to write that down because I want to try to find it and see it. I think it might be on YouTube somewhere. Probably someone uh, has uploaded. I mean, everything ends up oh, on I'm YouTube sure. at some point um, in time. But yeah, like Abel Gantz's uh, Napoleon. I mean, the and look, at the opening sequence is young Napoleon fighting, uh, do, doing a play of um, a snowball fight with his friends. And they're just play, but it foreshadows his rise to being the power. emperor, fr- rise yeah. to power, basically. And it, it's brilliantly done because it, it kind of follows him through his life. Sure. And I think it's, I think the film's like four or five hours, the whole thing. But oh, so we only, movie. basically, <laughs> you know, let's just <laughs> so do the extended, extended, extended cut. So <laughs> director cut version <laughs> one. Yeah. Well, uh, great. I'll make sure to put that in a five hour yeah. block of time. Yes. Um, that's exactly. That would have been the perfect early, co- uh, like pre uh, you know, know. quarantine film. It would have been the perfect early quarantine I should have gotten film. you right at March last year. <laughs> Darn it. Oh. Like, hey, Jacob, get that one. Yeah. <laughs> well, well, Jacob, we, we really appreciate you being on. Definitely. Uh, Make sure to check out Jacob's newest film, Dreamcatcher. It's available on Amazon Prime. Anywhere else? It's on, uh, it's on like everything, iTunes, Vudu, Fendant. Okay, Vudu. sweet. And then, uh, yeah, if you're listening internationally, the international dates will come out probably in the next couple of weeks. Fantastic. Awesome. Well, we appreciate it so much. Jacob Johnston, yes. everybody, thank you so much for being here. We thank really appreciate so much, it. Thank you so much, Jacob. And, uh, look forward to your next project. Thanks, yes. guys. It was a pleasure to chat with you. All right. No. Take care, man. Bye now. Bye. If you like this episode, follow us on social media at Film Detectives for further news and upcoming shows. Join us next week as we explore filmmakers from around the world. Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube.